Well, good morning. Thank you for coming to worship with us today. As you saw there, we're starting a brand new series called Devoted Followers. And if so, if this is your first Sunday here, you picked a good Sunday to start checking us out at Mount Airy because today we're going to be talking about how you can become more of a devoted follower of Christ, what that looks like. And, and it's also kind of a roadmap for our church, kind of where we're heading. But I do need to warn you about something. It's going to be a little bit different than perhaps normal or regular sermons that I've preached. Uh, this is what I sometimes call an airplane sermon. An airplane sermon, do you know what that is? It's just one that you taxi a while before you take off. Okay, so we're going to be taxing a while, and you're going to say, when is he ever going to get to the Scripture? I'm going to get there, but we're going to taxi a while before, before we get there. I want to start with just talking about what is it that we're trying to do? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? What is our mission at Mount Airy? And we'll put it on the screen. Here's what it is. We exist to help people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's why we're here. We want to help you to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you to learn this. In fact, I want to kind of put you to the test from week to week and maybe even stick a microphone and a camera in front of your face, okay? So you better learn it. I want you to learn. I want this to be something that you know. If I were to come to you and say, Donna, why do we exist? I want Donna to be able to say, we exist to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You got it? Let's, let's practice it one time. To become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's why we exist. Now, we believe that a fully devoted follower of Jesus ought to do four things. Gather, connect, serve, and go. That if you'll focus on those four things, if we can get everybody in the church to, to do these four things, we believe you'll, you'll really be a, a lot further down the road in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're going to focus on those four things this, in this series, and that'll kind of be a roadmap for where we're going. Now today we're going to focus on the very first one, which is gather. Why is it important that you and I gather as God's people? You perhaps have heard this old joke, but uh, uh, some of you haven't. There's a woman who woke up her husband to, go, to get ready to go to church, and, and he said, I'm not, I'm not going. And she said, honey, get up. It's time to get ready to go to church. He said, I'm not going. She said, honey, you need to get up. It's time to go to church. And he said, I'm not going. She said, why not? He said, well, the people in that church aren't friendly, it's full of hypocrites, and I don't like the music. You go if you want to. I'm not going. She said, honey, you've got to get up and go to church. He said, well, give me one good reason why I have to go to church. She said, all right, you're the pastor. <laughs> At times we all have to address that question, why, don't we? Why do we go to church? Why do we gather? Why does it even matter? You know that there is a new term circling now or being used in the church world nowadays called de-churched? It's an interesting term. You know, back in the 80s, the term that kind of was born in the 80s uh, was a term called the unchurched. That was a term used to describe those people who used uh, or who had never had a connection to church, they'd never grown up in church, they were unchurched. And, and back in the 80s and the 90s and beyond, Lots and lots of books were written, conferences were developed, worship services were changed, trying to, uh, to attract the unchurched, those who, who didn't have any significant church background. Now today, we're talking about the 
de-churched. Let me tell you who the de-churched are. The de-churched typically are people who have attended church, and many times they've attended church for years, but they no longer see church as essential to their lives, and so they stop going. They join the ranks of the unchurched. The de-churched don't see church as an, as an aid to their faith at all. The de-church began to view the church as a drain on their time and their resources and their energy. Now, would you like to guess what the largest age group of de-churched Americans is? What, what age group? Yeah. The, between the ages of 18 and 22 is the largest age group of the de-churched. And in fact, some studies say that the figure is as high as 70% of those between 18 and 22, drop out. 70%. Other studies say, no, it's more like 45%, but even that is high. What is it that causes this 70% or so of, of Americans just to say, I'm done with it? Here's what it is, or one of the ways we can describe it. Church is seen as an option now. And it's an option that's just no more important than the other options that we have. Work is an option. Some days, leisure things, leisure activities are an option. Going fishing, that's an option. Church, that's an option. Everything's just an option now. Maybe this will help you understand what we're talking about. Have you ever stood in front of an open refrigerator and you're just standing there looking for something, but you're not sure what you're looking for? You know, you got up late at night and you're hungry and you go to the church, or to the church, you go to the refrigerator. <laughs> I do that. You, you don't, but <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah, you know, you get up late at night and, and you just kind of go open the refrigerator and you just stand there and you're looking. And the light's on and everything. You're just standing there. You're not sure what you're looking for. You're just hoping it'll show up, right? So you just stand there looking and, and you're trying to find something. But you, again, you're not sure what you're looking for. And so, if you're like me, if I don't find it, I, I close the door to the refrigerator and I go over to the pantry. And I'll open the pantry and I'll do the same thing. I'll stand there. I just stand there looking, not sure what I'm looking for, but hoping I'll find it. And if you got it really, really bad, do you know what you do? You, no, no. You go back to the refrigerator. You open the refrigerator again and just stand there and look and hope that whatever it is you're looking for, which you don't know what you're looking for, eventually will show up. That's a pretty good description of what's happened in church, ladies and gentlemen. You see, for lots of people, they go to church Sunday after Sunday. They stand there and they're looking for something, but they're not quite sure what it is they're looking for. But they're hoping they'll find it. So Sunday after Sunday, they keep opening the door. Week after week, they keep opening the door, and they keep standing there staring, hoping they're hungry for something, but they're not sure what it is. And listen to me, and when they don't find it, they close the door and walk away. So the question is, why do we gather? Why do we gather? I did a study of that word gather in the Bible. I looked in the Old Testament, looked in the New Testament, looked in the Greek language, and looked in the Hebrew language. I, I did a lot of reading of what does that word gather mean. 
And when you look at it in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, either the Hebrew language or the Greek language, essentially you can boil down the meaning to two words. Gather means one of two things. It means to assemble or it means to collect. Both Old and New Testament, it means essentially the same thing, to assemble or to collect. In other words, to bring together. So in the Old Testament days, there was always this pattern of of God's people gathering. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see it again and again, God's people gathering, assembling, collecting together. One example of that would be Joel chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Put it on the screen there. It says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that concept. God's people gathering together for a reason, for a purpose. Being called together. And they gather together for this reason. They gather together for the purpose of worshiping God, or hearing a word from God, or repenting before God. And you see this throughout the Old Testament, books like Ezra and Micah and other places. Gathering with God's people was an important part of knowing God and serving God and following God. All of that, a lot of that took place in this gathering that they had throughout the Old Testament. And guess what? When you get to the New Testament, you find the same concept. When you come to the very first book, what's the very first book in the New Testament? Matthew, exactly. Come to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Guess what Jesus does? He gathers his followers together on a mountainside, and he teaches them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, you just five chapters in the first uh, New Testament book, and he's gathering his followers. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he's teaching. And they're not just standing there in front of a refrigerator staring, but, I mean, he is teaching them specifically how he wants them to live, what he wants them to do, He's training them and helping them. And guess where that took place? It took place in a gathering. It wasn't people out here on their own, out here running around by themselves. It took place in a gathering. And guess what? When he came to the end of his ministry, right before he went to the cross, one of the last things he did before he went to the cross is he gathered his followers in the upper room to prepare them for what was ahead. And so that's the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended into heaven, guess what the disciples did? Now we're going to turn to the Bible, right? We're finally getting there. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. This is talking about right after, immediately after Jesus ascended back into heaven. I want you to notice the very first thing that his followers did. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present, and, and those present are mentioned there, verse 14. Notice this, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They all joined together. It was just the pattern. It's what they'd come accustomed to. It's what they had seen as they read the Old Testament. It's what they witnessed as they followed Jesus 
They understood the value and the need of gathering together. So that's what they did. And as they gathered together, look what happens in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, notice what it says in the first verse. They were all at home. It's not what it says, is it? It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly it sounded like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This gathering... This gathering of people, this gathering of followers is what God used when when Pentecost came, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell uh, in His people. Could the Holy Spirit have done that when they were home? If He wanted to, He could. He was God, or He is God. But the Holy Spirit was working in the context of this gathering. And this gathering of God's people became the practice and the priority of the church. Look in verse 42 of chapter 2. It just shows us that this gathering became the practice and priority of the church. It says, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship that is getting together and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Look at verse 44. All the believers were, say it with me, they were what? Together. You see this pattern throughout the New Testament. Believers in Jesus Christ gathering together to worship God. Gathering together for worship. And gathering together for prayer. And gathering together for fellowship. And gathering together to be, to be instructed. And then eventually being sent out. But the, before there was ever a going, there was always a gathering. Now... Ladies and gentlemen, this is the time when you need to buckle your seatbelt because the plane is about to take off. Make sure your trays are locked and your seats are in the upright position because we're about to take off. You know what happened a short 50 to 60 years after the New Testament church as that we read about in Acts? It's mind-boggling. But a, a, fort, a, a short 40, 50, 60 years after we read about these things in the book of Acts. Look what happens in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. The book is anonymous. But by this time, 50 or 60 years after the start of the New Testament church, we read these words. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In the New Testament church, in Jerusalem, a mere 50 years after the church began, the de-churched had already arisen. They didn't call them de-churched then. That's exactly who they are, or who they were. They're, they are the people who stood in front of the door 
And they stood there looking for something and not sure what they were looking for and eventually closed the door and walked away. I mean, this was not written in Powdersville in 2017. This was written in Jerusalem or was written regarding the people in Jerusalem 50 years after the church started. And the writer of Hebrews said, let us not give up the practice of meeting together as the habit of some. Yes. Fascinating. Already this, this idea of I don't need church anymore had developed. I want you to notice these words here in chapter 10, verse 25. Two words I want you to take note of. Give up. They give up meeting together. That's a deliberate phrase. It's a powerful phrase. It's, it's an intentional phrase. Give up. It's not something you do accidentally. Give up is something that you choose to do. It's a choice that has been made. You know, just a few days ago, uh, Lisa and I started a sugar fast on Wednesday. This past Wednesday, we started a sugar fast, a 10-day sugar fast. I lasted until lunch that day. <laughs> I really did. I mean, I was, I was earnest. I was going to do it. I was going to join her, and I, I made it all the way to lunch. Here, here's what happened. I was preaching at North Greenville University the Wednesday morning at chapel. I had a great time there, and they said, hey, let's take you to lunch. I said, that's good. So we went to the cafeteria. They were having fried chicken day. So that's a good place for a, ch- for a preacher to go when they're having fried chicken. And so I walked into the cafeteria, and when I walked into the cafeteria, literally the first thing that, that, that I saw after I got past the lady at the little desk there, first thing that I saw was a, a Pepsi vending machine. And this, I mean, it was a, a Pepsi dispenser, you know. It's like you just take your glass, you, you get all the Pepsi you want. And when I saw that, this is what went through my mind. I said, free Pepsi. And then the other, the other you know, the other one on my shoulder said, sugar fast. And this, the one on this side said, free Pepsi. You can have all the Pepsi you want. You just keep going back. And, and then the one this side is like, sugar fast. Well, you know which one won, right? I mean, I drained that Pepsi machine that day because it was, it was free. And I won't even talk about the peach cobbler and the ice cream that followed. It's like, <laughs> well, if I messed up, I, I hadn't told her about the peach cobbler, but uh, <laughs> I guess I just did. <laughs> Here's what happened. I gave up. I turned my back on my commitment to this sugar fast. Just turned my back on it. And some of the Christians in the first century did exactly the same thing. It wasn't a sugar fast, it was the church. The Greek word translated give up speaks of desertion or abandonment. It literally means to leave behind, to turn away from, and to leave behind. It's the same word in 2 Timothy 4.10 that says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Church members in the first century had already started the habit, the practice, of turning their back on the church and saying, I don't need that anymore. And church members today are doing the same thing. Something or someone else gets their attention and they give up meeting together. Now, how does that happen? 
I've been a pastor long enough to know the pattern. If you miss once, it's easier to miss a second time. If you miss a second time, it's a lot easier to miss again and again. And before you know it, you have developed an unholy habit. And that's exactly what happened here in the book of Hebrews, because look what he says. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Amazing, some of the first century Christians had already formed the habit of not attending public worship. They had already formed the habit of not gathering with God's people. It's a dangerous habit back then, and it's a dangerous habit still today. This week I was watching a National Geographic little uh, video, and, and it was called Lions and Zebras. Actually, I think it was called Lions versus Zebras. And it was a video of, of the lions in Africa who were hunting the zebras. And, and, and it was a fascinating video because the zebras were fine so long as they were in this big herd. And they were, the lions were on the outskirts walking around and in the grass and tall grass and looking for opportunities and, and occasionally trying maybe an attack. But the, but the zebras, all they had to do was just to give a quick kick and they were in the herd and others give a quick kick and the lions would run away. Then the commentator said this. He said, zebras learn to keep their distance. That is, keep their distance from the lions. Zebras learn to keep their distance. But one zebra, listen, he said, one zebra is about to violate this first rule of the safari, which is always stay with the group. And sure enough, they show the picture of this one zebra who begins to wander off by himself. The herd is here and he wanders off by himself and let's just say it didn't end well for him. I mean, as that one zebra wanders off, which one do you think the lion is going for? The one in the herd? Or is he going for the one by himself? It didn't end well for that guy. And you've seen people do that in church, haven't you? They're in the gathering. They're in the herd. They're in the group. And, and, and you know, they're, they're a lot more safe there. But you've seen them wander off. And guess which ones Satan is going to go after? Can I remind you, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And when he sees one wandering off from the group, when he sees one wandering off from the gathering, when, you, when he sees someone develop the habit of staying away from God's people, you can mark it down. A Christian in isolation is a Christian in trouble. And it's probably not going to end well for them. I've just got to tell you something. I've just got to tell you with a heart of compassion. You need to think about this from a very logical perspective. When do you think you are most susceptible to the enemy's attack? Is it when you're with God's people week after week or when you are away from them? Well, you just think about it. What, doesn't that make sense? When are you most vulnerable? Is it when you come to, 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 the, to gather with God's people Sunday after Sunday or is it when you're not here? 
Is it when you're under the teaching of God's Word Sunday after Sunday? Or is it when you decide that you can leave that behind? And you don't really need that anymore. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Satan's goal is to keep you from gathering with God's people. Because when you stay out of church, you're opening your life to the opportunity for him to attack you. You're deciding that you can take on the devil by yourself, and that is a dangerous way to live. I've seen it so many times, year after year. People come to church, they love the church, they love Mount Airy. Oh, Pastor, we love you. Pastor, we love your preaching, we love your teaching. And they're here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They're just always here. They're deacons, and they're just always here. They're serving, they're always here. And then I've seen it over and over and over. Uh, they stop coming on Wednesday nights regularly, and then they stop coming Wednesday nights totally. And then Sunday nights, well, you know, we've we got to work tomorrow. And then they start sliding out of Sunday nights, not coming quite as often as they used to. And then eventually they stop coming on Sunday nights. And, but they're still coming on Sunday mornings at least for a while. And then they get into a rotation about every other Sunday on Sunday mornings. And, and sometimes they just close the door. And walk away. And sometimes they walk away and they join the ranks of the de-churched. And sometimes they walk away looking for another church. Or maybe it's better there. I want to tell you something. You've seen it. I've seen it. You know what I'm about to tell you. It's a perfect illustration, but it's so true. You've seen, I'm sure, those times when you have a campfire... And you get that, that coal and you move it away from the fire. You know what happens to it, don't you? That coal begins to, that was burning bright, burning hot, it begins to fade. It begins to lose the fire that's in it. It begins to cool. And that's some of you. Your devotion to God is not what it used to be or should be. You're serving, you're a deacon, but you're not here on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. Satan is doing really good just to move you away from the fire. Sunday school teacher, but you only come on Sunday morning. Satan is trying to move you away from the fire. You used to be involved in lots of things, and, and you came every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, but he's convinced you you don't need that. You can do fine without it, and he's moved you away from the fire. And your devotion to God seems to fade each passing week. I want to tell you something. You need God's people and God's people need you. And here's what the scripture says. Look at the next part of this verse. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another. Translation, there is strength in numbers. Let us encourage one another. There's strength in numbers. And all the more as you see the day, the day being the day that Jesus returns, all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, as the day of Jesus approaches, it's not going to get easier. It's going to be harder to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and we're not going to need each other less. We're going to need each other more. It amazes me that organizations in America have figured this out, but the church hasn't. Example, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been to Weight Watchers, but if you have, you probably have gone to group meetings. 
Because Weight Watchers understands that when you gather together, you can encourage one another. AA, Celebrate Recovery. They have gatherings of people. They gather together every week, sometimes every day. Because they understand the pull of sin. They understand the value of encouraging one another. They understand that if they violate the first rule of the safari, they're easy prey for the enemy. It's amazing that other groups understand this principle, but in the church, we think we can make it on our own. All of these organizations understand it is essential to gather so that we can encourage one another. There's some days when you come here and you need somebody to give you an encouraging word, and there's other days you come here and there's somebody near you who needs your encouraging word. Why would you want to turn away from? Why would you want to neglect? Why would you want to abandon this kind of encouragement? So I'm going to ask you to take what I call the 60-day challenge, and I'm dead serious. You know what the 60-day challenge is? I'm going to ask you for the next 60 days to come to church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I know that's hard for some of you. I, I get that. I understand that. But I'm going to ask you, well, why 60 days? Because, you know, psychologists say it takes seven weeks to develop a new habit. And so that, that's essentially 60 days, a little bit over. I'm giving you a little room to work with there. So for 60 days, I'm asking you, would you make a commitment not to your pastor? You're not going to have to sign anything or do anything. You're not going to have to call me. But just between you and the Lord, would you say, Lord, for the next 60 days, I'm going to try this challenge. I'm going to come on Sunday morning. I'm going to come on Sunday night. I'm going to come on Wednesday night. And I'm going to see if it makes a difference. I'm going to see if it makes a difference in my marriage. I'm going to see if it makes a difference in my family. I'm going to see if it makes a difference in me. 60 days. I dare you. Challenge you. For some of you, it's just getting back into what you used to do already. Now, we're going to close with a short little video of a guy that's in our church. And, and this guy's name is Zach Fisher. And Zach wants to tell you about the value he's found in g- gathering with God's people. Let's watch this quick little video. So my, my experience at um, Mount Airy Baptist Church started uh, about 12 years ago uh, when Beth and I uh, started dating. Um, I got really involved with, with Mount Airy coming from my church that I grew up in. I uh, didn't really get too involved right off the bat. Uh, just showing up on Sunday morning was, was the most important thing. And I think that's where everything kind of led me to where I am now. It's important to gather on Sunday morning, one, for because the Bible tells us that we need to um, come to, to God's house to, to worship and to give thanks. But I think we also have to think about um, getting fed. Uh, there's so many ways that we get fed, personally, in our own quiet time, through prayer, um, but also coming to, to God's house and being able to get fed from the pastor, from other church members who have gone through other experiences, um, other, other people in the church that just have so much more knowledge. Uh, and you never know, you can also uh, be a person that you don't think that uh, you, you have a whole lot of knowledge, but just that little bit could be uh, something that you could feed 
other people as well. So I think it's just the experience um, of how, how you can get fed. Uh, one other thing that um, I've experienced here at Mount Airy is being able to watch uh, my little boys grow. Uh, my oldest is six now, and uh, starting him out from the baby nursery all the way up to uh, the, the class that he's in now, and seeing him come home or, or get in the car and, and ask questions about the Bible, and finding these apps on, on our phones and, and, and iPads and, and wanting to play games that talk about the Bible, and uh, reading stories of, uh, that are in the Bible. Um, you know, that's, that's been huge for me and that's been a big part of why we're here at Mount Airy um, because of the, the, the children program.